it's Liz Kelly. I want to tell you about our great football coverage on the Ringer Podcast Network. Every Monday, Bill Simmons and Cousin Sal recap the weekend and guess next week's NFL lines on the BS Podcast. On Wednesday mornings, Ryan Russillo hits the hardest angles in college and pro football on our new podcast, Dual Threat. And on Wednesday nights, Cousin Sal and the Degenerate Trifecta figure out the best gambling angles on Against All Odds. And five times per week, the Ringer NFL show reacts to the latest news with Kevin Clark, Robert Mays, Tate Frazier, Mike Lombardi, and the Danacy football crew. Subscribe to the BS Podcast, Dual Threat, Against All Odds, and the Ringer NFL show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And on the site, Zach Cram speculates which NBA roster would be best if every player was in his prime. And Claire McNear is writing about American Vandal. You can check those out on TheRinger.com. David, when Fox News host Tucker Carlson interviewed Michael Avenatti last week, the Chiron on the TV screen read, Creepy Porn Lawyer Toying with 2020 Run. What I want to know is, What's the most singularly ludicrous and bad faith cable news Chiron that we could come up with for each other? Oh my gosh. Just imagine I'm on, you know, the nightly news with Shoemaker on Fox News. Top of the ratings. You're the guest on Curtis Country <laughs> with two Ks. And and you just, go, what what is the Chiron? Who wants to go first here? Man, you go first. You go first. All right. You're sitting beside me, David, and the viewers at home see. First of all, I think these should all just start with creepy. <laughs> it's just better when it's creepy, <laughs> right? So uh, here we go. Creepy obituary writer waits for underappreciated pro wrestler to croak. <laughs> that's how I'd sum up your career. Oh, that's really unfortunate, man. <laughs> I don't think it's very good. What do you got? Man, I was, I was trying to find a million different ways to work troll into this. <laughs> but I think I'm just going to go with sports media historian for you, but all three of the words are in separate quotes. <laughs> it's, it was actually kind of insulting either way, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was basically the saddest thing you could possibly describe oneself. <laughs> Call this the creepy podcast that leers at the media for 40 minutes. It's the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where you're not allowed to watch the Ben Shapiro election special. That is a thing. That was like signed today. Just, just imagine checking that out. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. Back with three topics today. And David, we're going to talk about the return of accused Me Too violator Jan Gomeshi and why the New York Review of Books let him publish a long, piteous first-person story. Second, we're going to do an NFL grab bag covering everything from former Browns receiver Josh Gordon, who just got released, to the Nike Colin Kaepernick ad, which we haven't had a chance to talk about. And finally, if you watch cable news, you've been watching the devastation of two storms, Tropical Depression Florence and Typhoon Mangot. We talk about storm coverage in the United States and maybe some Trump tweets, too. Plus, as always, our overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's start here. Last week, something amazing happened in the, the American media. Two of the nation's foremost intellectual magazines became the Me Too Players Tribune. First, Jan Gameshi, the Canadian radio host charged and in a few instances acquitted of sexual assault, wrote a piece in the New York Review of Books. And John Hockenberry, a public radio host accused of sexual harassment and other offenses, wrote a 7,000-word story for Harper's. This is 
I got to say, this is one of those, if we hadn't been doing a segment about this, I might have just read the tweets about these pieces and let them yeah. do the work for me. I'm glad I did because I think, um, well, neither piece is any good. They they are illustrative of, you know, the moment we are here and these, you know, again, we just talked about Louis C.K. coming, attempting to come back via stand-up into yeah. American life. And this was these two guys kind of coming back in their own way. What did you make of the two stories? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing you and you mentioned it is that they're both really bad. Um, just as story, I mean, forget forget the ethics, right? Just as yeah, pieces forget of the writing. ethics, forget the forget the content more or less. Yeah, this is the, they're just bad pieces of writing. The John Gameshi piece was just, I mean. We, there's no need to like overly like glorify the past of these periodicals or, or you know, to, to compare, you know, apples to Hemingway's or anything in this situation. But the, but the, the Gameshi's piece was just silly and bad and not up to the standards of, of you know, any, you know, purportedly highbrow publication. The Hockenberry piece was just weird. I mean, I get like I, I kept I kept. I mean, giving giving it the benefit of the doubt, you try to try to read some sort of, you know, mystery train style, you know, genius behind the madness sort of, but the, but it's not there. Um, and what you kind of end up with, though, and I think what's pertinent is to to people who are, you know, legitimately confused and legitimately and feel legitimately. Well, I don't know if wronged is the right word. I don't want to read. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know mess up the vocabulary here but who who have who have been hurt in some way you know by the by the accusations you know the, the very legitimate accusations leveled against them separately and 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 are trying to come to grips with it and i think if anything is clear by the style and the and the writing itself it's that they have not made much progress in that journey no this was the this was the point of michelle goldberg's column which was passed around a lot on twitter um, yeah. She writes, I feel sorry for a lot of these men, which she genuinely does, but I don't think they feel sorry for women or think about women's experience much at all. And maybe that's why the discussion about Me Too and forgiveness never seems to go anywhere because men aren't proposing paths for restitution. They're asking why women won't give them absolution, which is a terrific paragraph. And, and you immediately, when you start to read these essays, you start to see the problem because neither Gomeshi nor Hockenberry admit uh to most uh, or at least the most serious charges against them. Mm. So they're not grappling with what they did because they don't admit it or didn't do. They don't admit it, right? So immediately, narratively, we're just stuck, right? I, I didn't do what those people said I did. Therefore, I don't have I'm, – I'm sort of offering a limited apology or a limited reckoning and, and nothing goes case, anywhere. In, in Gameshi's case in particular, it's, he, it's not just that he's, he denies it. He he presents a watered down version of it, right? This very like this this just airbrushed, very very brief acknowledgement that some stuff happened, that some people were talking poorly about him online. Online, and, then, and that was a great touch, right? Not yeah. that this had been somebody pointed on Twitter. This has been like reported by the Toronto newspapers extensively. And yeah. he says, "Oh, you know, it's like this was like there was a that Gawker post one time or something." That was like that was his basically his hint there. Yeah, and I think that in some sense you can, I mean, I, the the sympathy that that Michelle Goldberg you know expresses, I think is is 
sort of is powerful. I mean, that really is what her response. I mean, that that's the the most powerful element of her response in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, but she, but the the sympathy is the the sympathy is for you know for the for the world changing so quickly and his complete inability to. Uh, let, let me just say this. One of the most important things in this whole process, and this gets in, this is going to get into the weeds in a lot of ways. I, I understand. I, I am sympathetic to Gomeshi in the sense that I don't think he was ready to write this piece, and he sh- probably shouldn't have been the person to ever write this parting shot. And I, I mean, for for a lot of reasons, I, I'm not mad at him for putting pen to paper and writing this this thing down, even if it leaves. Ninety nine point nine percent to be desired. Mm-hmm. That said, uh, he's you know being willfully or not very dishonest about a situation, and it's the editorial process that should be that should that should be reconciling that. And it's really really clear that his editors didn't have any interest in the details of what happened to him. Yeah. So there's this typically excellent Isaac Chodner interview in Slate with the. Uh, the New York Times Book Review's editor, Ian Baruma, who has a sentence where he says, the exact nature of his behavior, how much consent was involved, I have no idea, nor is it really my concern. And I, I just think when you punt on that question, you've just, you've just punted on everything, right? Mm-hmm. This is a guy you're allowing to write in for the, for the, for the magazine. I, I, don't, I don't quite know if you haven't, if you haven't examined um, if you have no idea, and again, people speak off the cuff, and 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 maybe he regrets that line and and would phrase it differently. I, I suspect if asked again, but if you have no idea what he did, <laughs> then it just doesn't seem like you should be able to to publish him in your magazine. That's the whole point. I mean, right? And it I wasn't a one-off I, comment, right? Well, I just it's like his whole thing is well, he was exonerated in a trial, um, but we know that that. You know, sometimes people are exonerated who are guilty. Yeah, sure. But that's just like if you just don't understand the nature of the charges, the wide-ranging nature of the charge, then you just you're 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 not even prepared to. You say Gomeshi wasn't prepared to write this piece. Baruma wasn't prepared to publish this piece either. By the way, well, he certainly he certainly wasn't prepared to have a conversation about it, which is really unsettling. You know, it wasn't one. It wasn't one comment that that may or may not have been taken out of context, you know. And in, in if if it, if that one line had appeared in a in a otherwise um, reassuring or just you know intellectually consistent and confident point of view, I mean, they could it 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 you know you might say, well, that's just one line taken out of context. But the entire interview was more was more of that. I mean, just line after line was him just sort of engaged in this very very like lightweight intellectual exercise about the whole thing, but not actually interested in in any of the details of the person he was publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another line from the Goldberg piece that I really loved where she's, she says, you know, she's talking about her sympathy for um, some of the, the, you know, broadly defined Me Too victims, not the, the wine scenes of the world, but the, you know, people who have been kind of caught up, like what Hockenberry claims of himself. And um, she says, I can only imagine how disorienting it must be to have the rules change on you so fast, uh, to have your reputation obliterated in an instant, and to suddenly be unable to do the work that gives you identity. 
I think that the rules changing so quickly is is a really. I mean, we've probably we've we've touched on this before, but that in some ways I think is the source of the greatest unease for a lot of people. And I think, and certainly there are a lot there that is even if even for people that have not been accused of anything, and 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 maybe for pe- people who haven't even done anything wrong, the perception that everything's changing and we don't know the sort of fear amongst. You know, I mean, I don't want to like paint a target on Ian Baruma, but like, you know, there, I've certainly had old white male bosses that that would have been looking for an excuse to to publish the Gomeshis of the world to sort of try to reestablish traction uh, or or to, or to or to just define where we are in a very in, in a way that's been deeply unsettling and confusing to a whole generation of men, really. Mm-hmm. And I think that that sort of disorientation is in the balance a good thing and battling against it again we're we're so early in this process battling against it so soon under the pretense of intellectual exercise uh or open interrogation of the subject or whatever is just it doesn't surprise me that he that he wasn't wasn't interested enough to know the details of his writer's piece because he wasn't interested enough in like inter- in interrogating his own feelings on the situation yeah i i I was thinking about this over the weekend. Uh, this to me harkens back to this age, and I say age, but it, it ended like five minutes ago, where so many publications were invested in just like, this piece doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be right. It just has to be provocative. There was this whole like subgenre of journalism that has kind of gone out of style now. Mm-hmm. This was the New Republic, and again, I am a product of this this world, by the way. Sure, the, the New Republic. It was Slate. It was. It still is in many ways the New York Times op-ed page, which is why it gets uh, so routinely shat upon all the time on Twitter. We're just like, mm-hmm. hey, it's just I, look this this is inter- This is just kind of. In- I thought this was interesting and provocative, and that's kind of all the reason you need to publish it. And or that was what in the in the old days was all the reason an editor sure. gave because they published it. And this is kind of what Broom is doing here, right? It reminds me of that period, and we've seen that now. Um, the, so many people just don't accept that anymore. It's like, well, but it sucks, or it's you know the piece isn't any good, or the piece is you know written in bad faith. By the way, you mentioned it's interesting. You mentioned an idea where you say it seems so early in this in this whole Me Too endeavor, uh, this Me Too movement, I should say. I think it's funny because when you read these two pieces to Gomeshi and Hockenberry, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem early. It seems early to people like us looking at it from the outside. It doesn't seem early to them because they've been sitting around not working for months or years. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And just watching and and sort of in this, as they portray it, in this isolation. Uh, and to them, it feels, I think, like a long time. And that's why – and they feel powerless, right? That's the point of these essays. They feel like they can – they're in this purgatory that they can never come out of. Um, and, and that, that just struck me as funny, by the way, to, to the point about publishing stuff, here's an interesting, interesting tweet from the New Yorker's Nathan Heller last week. He says, it seems okay to me for a publication to publish ill-advised things, ludicrous things, even bad things, and be thoroughly kicked around like a football for it. That seems like the system working a publication, publishing only things it knows it won't be kicked around for seems worse. What do you make Mm -hmm. of that idea? I'm less opposed to publishing contrarian ideas than, well, one, the sort of ethos that you were talking about before of sort of contrarian for its own sake, contrarianism for its own sake, 
that almost always will end badly. You know, <laughs> I mean, even if it's, it doesn't have to be, you know, Andrew Sullivan publishing the bell curve in the New Republic to like, you know, for people to be, I mean, to, to realize that there, there are limits to contrarianism. But I think it's the lack of self-awareness, right? I mean, it's, I think publishing contrarian stuff is good and important. I, th- I agree with that. And I, and, I, and I feel like deliberate contrarianism has a different face in 2018, um, and most of it's like Twitter memeing, but I still think some of that can be can be good. I don't know. What do you think? Well, this is this is to me. It's like there's there's a distinction right between contrarianism, like Democrats should support Trump or something like that, which is the mm-hmm. old style of political contrarianism we're talking about, versus something like this a little bit, you know, and saying like ill advised pieces are are okay. You know, it's like it's a little that's a little broad, right? <laughs> because we can look yeah. you can look at something like, oh, this is a thought experiment, and then you can look at a Gameshi essay and be like, this just seems really bad and sort of pointless. I just say I also thought about the question of how would you, let's say you wanted to you wanted the, the Gameshi story to be in your journal of letters. How mm-hmm. would you do that is another question, right? Do you run the Gameshi essay and then run you know, a big fat editor's note, do you run a kind of rebuttal to it saying this is self-pitying and ridiculous? Yeah. I mean, to me, the best, the best solution is just like, why doesn't Michelle, if you, if you think that's issue, why don't you call Michelle Goldberg and ask her to, and if she wants to interview her. Well, that's why, I mean, I, and obviously I said probably, or you said the word contrarianism. That's not, you didn't pull that from someone else's mouth, but the defense of contrarianism doesn't really hold any water here because I think what's the most, the, the thing that's most, salient about the Gameshi essay is that there was no deliberate contrarianism. I mean, there might have been in the sense that it was battling back against some perceived some perceived enemy or something, but it but it was it was there was not that level of thought put behind it, right? But on the editorial side especially. Mm-hmm. Um and it did feel very much like, I mean, again, we've all been in these situations when the big boss takes interest or takes, you know, is steering the ship on something, there it probably there's not as many People aren't as willing to voice, uh, uh, you know, concerns about something that's being. I mean, something that's that seems like it's barreling forward unstoppably. Yeah, and we and at this point, we just have to take Baruma's word that there wasn't any, that the internal pushback wasn't very fierce, and we won't really know that. I think without further reporting. Yeah, no, and I I, I agree with that. But even just sometimes it's even. I mean, and, and and again, we've both experienced this. Sometimes it's not even just whether or not someone's pushing back, but it's the sort of internal in-house self-awareness that like, this is a piece that we should be considering pushback on. We're welcoming pushback. Read this, everybody read this draft and push back, you know, because we're, because we mm-hmm. know, we're, because we're aware enough that we know that some, that, that we might be getting a response. Let's be, let's get out ahead of it. Let's edit this piece in such a way that it's, that it stands up to criticism. And none of that could have possibly happened. I agree. Right? I mean, it's 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 just impossible. And by the way, also that we, the New York Review of Books, are conferring highbrow respectability to this guy just by publishing this story. I pu- you know, I looked up, I was pulled up like a TOC of a recent New York Review. It, it's amazing how it's the, all the same guys and gals. It's like you mm-hmm. went back to the classical civ uh, division of your wing of your college and all the professor's <laughs> offices were still in the same place. I was like, wow, okay, let's see. Uh, Timothy Garton Ash, check. Uh, w- Christopher Benfey, check. Lori Moore, Jeffrey O'Brien. Uh, it's like Jed Pearl. Jed Pearl! <laughs> Deborah Eisenberg. It's, it's, the same, it's the same peeps. Everybody. Everybody's still here. Like Michael Tomaski is like the young, the young buck 
the Donruss rated rookie of this group and he's <laughs> not a young buck. No, no offense to Michael Damaski, but it's sort of like, there's a sense of like, you were, you were taking the gravitas, the combined gravitas of all these people and transferring some of it onto Gameshi sure. the moment you push publish on this. No. Yeah. I mean, and all these people are like, you're, they're greats. They're also, I mean, it's, it's sort of the, the you know, cyclical, I mean, or, or it's, it's a circle. They're greats probably partially right because they're published in the New York review of books that, you know, and, and, and they, it's a sort of a self-sustaining infrastructure of like what the Northeastern, you know, highbrow literary scene looks like. Who is it that said, this is a joke that we've shared several times over the years. Who is it that, 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 that first hilari- hilariously called the, the Nairob the New York Review of each other's books? <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> I'm going to look that up while you keep talking. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. That's, it's a I great mean, that's, joke. It, it's a great, it's a great, like, very, very inside baseball or inside publishing gag, you know, at the expense of, of the New York Review. You're right to ask the question about what would be the right way to publish this. And I don't know that there's, you know, that we can that we can fantasize a perfect way through this. If you were stuck with the Gomeshi piece, how do you balance it out? It's it's so far, it's so far from being balanced out. It's so far, I mean, just just the, what we what we started with, the, his disingenuous about what he had been accused of and and you know, the the court verdicts that that had led to um you know, someone has the fact that no one that no one thought, "Hey, we should just be really clear. Let's just not get that wrong before we put this out into the world." But um but yeah, I mean, I think that you, I think that publishing a counterpoint right there is is uh, is one way to do it. Um, I think, I think publishing. I mean, I think, I, I think the first person, first person in this case was just really, really bad luck. You know, I mean, that the, the, there was there was zero, none of the introspection of this piece was actually introspective. Yeah, and, and I'm just, let me just push back against the phrase "bad luck," which is one of my least. It's just bad. Yeah, you know, right. You know, it's, it's not it's not bad because it looks bad. It's just bad. No, you're you're absolutely right there. Yeah, no, I, and and I I I just think that it's that if there's anything, if you were if you were firmly in the of the opinion that many of the men caught up in Me Too had been wronged. Um, this is not, this is, even then, this is not the way to do it. You'd think there there would probably be more, there would certainly be more of interest and of worth gleaned from a reported piece with Gameshi as the central figure than giving him the voice and the platform to, you know, write middle school mash note poetry in the New York Review of Books and pretending that it's like intellectually riveting. The Hockenberry essay, I want to call just a few details of this before we go on this, because these are just, like I said, strange and bizarre, uh, you know, are, are, are grappling with offensive here. When you mm-hmm. describe these essays, he talks about there's there's in all these essays, there's like a there's sort of like a obligatory piteous detail in Gameshi's. It's that he's singing. He's been reduced to like singing karaoke instead of being on the radio. In Hockenberry's, it's that his Emmys and Peabody's are in store in a storage unit in Brooklyn. <laughs> That's his. He also, um, he has this kind of strange thing where he's going through all the kind of works that he said helped him develop his ideas of sexuality, one of which is Lolita, another of which is a 1974 production of Zorba the Greek that he started in high school and has this line about saying that that production of Zorba from the early 70s is still talked about in his hometown. I mean, it's like in where and in what forum is that still talked about? Just... (laughs) It's like well, he's being glorious. Like, okay, uh, that's interesting. And then he holds his, his whole thing about that his what has happened. You know, he's sort of one of these. Again, he's he's not trying to 
you know, fully sort of push back. But one of his things is he's saying that it's like what has been lost in American society is this idea of romance, you know? Yeah. Uh, which is just like of all the tactics to take here. Like essentially I was just trying to conduct myself as a romantic and that we've all lost the plot on romance. No. Uh, you know, you just don't, <laughs> no, you just no don't. is the right answer. That's right. That's like a be that's like a uh, like a like a serial killer being like what's really lost in this in 2018 is the ideals of butchery, you know, of like yeah. of being able to cut good meat with a finely honed knife. Like no, this is a totally separate thing. You're not the guy to talk about this. No. By the way, do you want me to give you the who who made the joke about the New York review of each other's books? Yes. Please. It was Richard Hofstadter. Wow. Cousin Sa <laughs> cousin Sal had that at plus 300. By the way, had Richard Hofstadter. <laughs> I think we need to. I think we need to get against all odds in here because this is. What's going on, buddy? <laughs> I would like to know. Did you have it? Did you have it as Richard Hofstadter did? <laughs> that was not going to be my guess. That actually, I was expecting to be someone of a little bit of a younger demographic. But I love that Hofstadter was uh is coming off the top rope with that. I also am really before we really get out of here, not to make too light of the situation, but to make light of it. I I desperately desperately want an episode of Storage Wars that's set in whatever storage unit John Hockenberry. <laughs> Is putting his goods in. I just want to see the like the weird cast of that bad show come across and try to define a Peabody Award. You know, just like going to very <laughs> going to various like trophy makers around Brooklyn and trying to figure out what it is that they have in their hands. Yeah. Would, that would be really fantastic. Now, is this distinct from a Polk Award in some way? <laughs> I can't remember the difference. All right, now it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious, David, that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. One I missed while we were in Labor Day mode, Candace Owens. What what do we call Candace Owens? Conservative Twitter presence? I mean, I, I don't... We need, a, we need a word for it. We need I mean, a word I don't know for this. That she's not even particularly present. I mean, it's not like her tweeting seeps out of her own timeline a lot, but yes, she's a conservative Twitter presence. Well, she was incensed at some of the funeral orations at John McCain's service and, and the various memorial services that were held around, she tweeted this oh, new God, trend. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This new trend of using funerals and eulogies to deliver political messages is really quite disgusting. Sympathy from death as means to sway public opinion is next level corrupt. Everyone involved should be ashamed of themselves. I got 25,000 retweets, but as Bruno Alves points out to us, it was an overworked Twitter joke to point out that Pericles uh, used a funeral oration for this purpose in 431 BC. Now, I'd, <laughs> I include this not because it's particularly funny, but I love highbrow Twitter owns. That's great. Oh, yeah. What about Pericles? <laughs> <laughs> I think there should be, you know, we, we always Pericles? do that. There's a Trump tweet for that. I think there, yeah. there's a Pericles funeral funeral oration for that really should be the <laughs> should be the comeback. Thanks to Bruno Alves for that one. A tweet from Time, the recently sold Time uh, on September 9th. The tweet was, you're more likely to retire wealthy if you do this one thing. Now, how is that, David, for a clickable tweet? Do this one thing. You and I, David, could retire wealthy. It was an overworked Twitter joke to say, be born rich. Uh, <laughs> thank, thanks to Dre for that. And by the way, again, I include this, not because it's particularly funny, because if you just click on the original time tweet, it was just a pit of Gen X, Gen Y, millennial self-loathing. Like, <laughs> we're all going to die broke. So oh, no. we have no chance. It was all like win the lottery, rob a bank. Anyway, it's it's funny because it's true. And finally, a tweet from Mediaite. I'm sure you saw this, David. Paul McCartney details in new profile the time he masturbated with John Lennon. This was about as close to an overworked, a universal overworked Twitter joke 
as we could ever get. The entire nation speaking like voice of God like uh, at the same time <laughs> to react to the news that McCartney and Lennon masturbated in each other's company by tweeting, come together. Woo. Yeah. I'm I'm a little surprised, by the way, the New York Post went with beat the Meatles as their headline. There was a front page, which is fine as puns go, right? Maybe they now wanted beat, to be different. Maybe they wanted to go underworked. Beat the Meatles is great in the if if it weren't for the fact that one of their bit greatest songs was called Come Together. It is indeed. All right. Thanks to Jared Salisbury for that. David, let's talk about topic number two now. I want to do an NFL grab bag because we haven't talked about the NFL. It is. We're Damn. two we're two weeks in to football season. Let's start with this clip. Here's Bill, the Bills, the Buffalo Bills, Lorenzo Alexander talking about the fact that his teammate. Defensive back Vontae Davis retired at halftime of the Bills' blowout loss to the Chargers. You've seen anything like that in your NFL career? Never have seen it ever. Pop Warner, high school, college, pros, never heard of it, never seen it. And it's just completely disrespectful when to uh, his teammates. Did he say anything to you? Did, did, did he say anybody to anything? He didn't say nothing to nobody. He left? When did yeah, he you know as much as I know. I know I found out going in the second half of the game. Uh, coming out, said he said he's not coming out. He retired. So, what? Yep, that's it. So, who said uh, that? Who said what? Who said he? Sean said that. On the sideline. Yeah, side I mean, guys heard about it and said that he wasn't coming back out. First of all, this was like laugh it up gag on sports radio this morning on Monday morning after the game. Mm-hmm. Doesn't this feel like one of those things that in the old days this would have gone in like the blooper weird athlete happening Hall of Fame? But now in the age of CTE, we sort of think differently of this. It's more like, well, you know, the whole if the whole goal is to get out of professional football with your brain somewhat intact. Yeah. Why not? Why not retire at halftime? <laughs> this Bill's <laughs> season is going nowhere, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Vontae Davis has been in the league for a long time, made a lot of money. Maybe, maybe, maybe just step away now. And I, I think weirdly it's more sympathetic now. Again, not on the sports radio that I necessarily heard this morning, but I, I yeah. feel it's different. Well, I think the halftime thing was the real was the the easier thing to grab onto, right? His statement that he released from you know after the game was fairly touching and extremely uh, well stated as far as those things go. And if that had just been a post game retirement, uh, even if it had seemed like it was in a fit of peak or whatever, like that, I think that you know there would have been a it would have been entirely understandable. Yeah, there's some little sports uh, norms or mores that that it, do carry over into real life enough that it's a little bit harder to get past them. And one of those, like you know, don't quit on your teammates in the middle of a game <laughs> or something. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it, I, I think that um, you know maybe you should get credit for just being more honest or more forthright, you know, whatever. Because it's 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 clearly not. Um, you know, I mean, it, there's a lot of people that that have, I'm sure, quit on their teams halfway through in more uh, <laughs> sneaky ways. <laughs> Without actually quitting? Yeah. Yeah, and the ethical thing of this is, is interesting for sports radio because what's the difference between, like, what if he just quit after the game? Right. What's the difference? Was it is it is it worse because the Bills were just getting uh, blown out by the Chargers and looked totally hopeless before kind of rallying for a couple of second-half touchdowns? Yeah. Uh, versus just doing it afterwards. Like, hey, you quit on us week week two. I mean, yes. that, that seems pretty dramatic, <laughs> well, too. Again, I'm very sympathetic to him. I think that it's, I think it's very easy to make the case that, like, the problem with quitting halfway through is that, you know, you put your teammates in a difficult spot and maybe more danger because the game plan you drew up, uh, you know, is now out the window or at least 
5% out the window or something. That clip is also amazing because the, the Bills linebacker just seems genuinely confused. And the reporters are asking yeah. her just like, what? What? Yes. <laughs> they have no idea what happened. That's so good. You also sent me a note this week on the strange saga of Josh Gordon, Cleveland Browns wide receiver, has an amazing, oh. insane touchdown catch in week one against the Steelers. And then he gets mysteriously cut right before the Browns lost yet another heartbreaker. Mm -hmm. Uh, this time to the Saints. What did you make of the whole Gordon situation? First of all, not cut. Uh, they, as, I'm as, sorry. As we almost yeah, cut. They, they, announced, they announced that he was cut. It was almost as if they were using, um, you know, football media Twitter to gin up interest in him or something, you know, or whatever. But the last thing we heard was that he was he might be headed for the Patriots um, in a trade. Um, I mean, listen... I'm a I'm a Baylor grad, <laughs> as is Josh Gordon. I don't have a lot of sympathy uh, for a lot of what remains of the Baylor football program uh, in the time since I graduated that place. But I do have a ton of sympathy for Josh Gordon, who seems like a guy who's, you know, has legitimate, uh, you know, personal issues, demons is what they'd call them in uh, the pro wrestling world. Um, and... As far as we know about the story, I mean, it seems like his biggest sin is sort of is self-medicating, you know, and and he's certainly a very good player. Um, it's been a while since we've seen him play with any, you know, in any kind of consistent stretch because of his series of suspensions and his problems uh, with substance abuse or or use. But um, it's a it's a weird story, and I and I will say that the the level of I think maybe more shocking than anything else is sort of the level of of um, of sympathy for him that I feel amongst just about everybody I talk to about football, uh, mm -hmm. including including the Ringer staff. Hopefully, not you know betraying too much. Um, there, you know, it's easy for a certain set to make jokes at his expense, but uh, I know we're going to talk about Kaepernick in a minute. But there's this sort of like there's it. It does feel a little bit like Josh Gordon, if not if he's not the best, if he's not the best spokesman for a cause, that he's sort of the beginning of a much more significant conversation and and uh there's a lot of sympathy for him just for for being kind of out in the spotlight on this count i do think there's a lot of sympathy for him but here's what i would say i see these tweets that are like you know i wish josh gordon the best in his battle with addiction if that's mm -hmm. what this in fact is if that's the right word to describe this this is a fight bigger than football so that way but then immediately see people say but all that said i don't want him on my team because there's this weird, like, narrative head-on collision here that's, on the one hand, you know, someone struggling, someone in recovery, and how bad people tend to feel for them. On the other, this weird obsession with personnel and fantasy football mm -hmm. um, that where people sort of kick into the mode of, well, I don't want the Dallas Cowboys to sign this guy. I don't want the Patriots to sign. So, okay, so you're simp you really, really want him to succeed, but you just don't want him to succeed with your team. And I yeah. saw this. I feel this as a Texas Rangers fan. I saw this with, with Josh Hamilton who was, when he arrived at the Rangers, this guy who had overcome, uh, overcome is again the wrong word, he had been badly, he was an addict, as he admitted, uh, he had, you know, was in, was in a good place in his life, and he became this great baseball player, won the AL MVP, and then he relapsed, which if you were listening to him was something he had said all along, right, I'm, I'm in this fragile state, I am, mm -hmm. this is not my life, I am not well, quote unquote, but as soon as he relapsed, I saw lots of fans just turn on him immediately. Like, oh, I just can't trust this guy. Just can't trust. Him. But no, no. But that yeah. the whole the whole story is about that, right? Yep. 
the whole thing is about that. So um, again, there's not like a there's not a neat and easy solution to that problem, but it's just one of those things where I feel like two distinct kind of ready-made sports narratives just collide at the same time, and you just watch it always happens. Uh, it always happens, and it happened again this weekend. Yeah, I think that the sympathy is is uh, you know well placed, and um, and I hope that the teams that you know whatever team decides to, to 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 wherever he ends up, I hope that they you know are interested in his well being as they are in his uh, his touchdown catching ability. Let's talk about the Colin Kaepernick Nike ad, which we yeah. haven't gotten a test. First, let's listen actually to the Colin Kaepernick Nike ad. Believe in something. Even if it means sacrificing everything. So don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they're crazy enough. Kind of an amazing throwback, by the way, isn't it, to the 90s when Nike ads were just like transfixed the public? Where just everybody was, it's like, I'm, I feel that, that that still happens to a degree, but we're 20 years from when like one of these would come on, you'd just be like, oh my gosh, right? This was like, <laughs> I don't think we had water coolers in our in our middle and high schools, but like it was the equivalent of water. It was lunch cafeteria line talk the next day. Um, what did you make of Nike embracing Kaepernick and by extension his causes like they have? <laughs> I think that it was I think it was probably a really smart move. On, I mean, listen, of all of the different ways that we are going to call uh, businesses and publications and media outlets uh, stupid over the lifespan of this podcast. For some reason, and maybe it's just, you know, the crass capitalist in me, I'm going to trust Nike's front office to know to, to, on whether or not this was a wise business decision. I think they probably knew exactly the demographics they were, they were pushing this into and that they were, and that this was a, um, it was going to be really good to make noise and it was probably going to be really good um, Audience-wise, it was gonna, it was going to, you know, push more shoe sales than it was going to, uh, than it, than it was going to, to stop. And listen, for better or worse, this is, I mean, this could be just a crass economic decision on their part. Um, <laughs> Does it, what what are the non-crass economic decisions that Nike carries? I mean, out? it's possible that Phil Knight or whoever is just like, I truly believe in his cause, and I'm going to make him the face of this campaign, whether whether it's going to you know, even if that means tanking my entire com- company. I don't think anybody really assumes that's the case. <laughs> I was about to say that would be the that would be the first in <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> I don't care what happens, but you the, take the whole company. Yeah. It's I, but, I guess that's but, what makes what I'm the weird place here is like. You can be if you support what Colin, the kinds of issues that Colin Kaepernick is talking about, and the means that he has gone to 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 bring attention to them. Yeah, um, and he and other NFL players, and you are happy for him that Nike that he's in a Nike commercial and he has this platform to talk about this. Still, there's there's the squeamish angle of how do we feel about Nike getting the, you know what does Nike want with this? Right? Is it is it just one thing that they've decided it's good for their bottom line? So. It all comes out in the wash, right? Hey, yay! More people pay yeah. attention to Colin Kaepernick. More people, you know, buy stuff. More people are into this kind of thing, or just is that just weird in a way? Well, Nike also has an economic, financial relationship with the NFL, so that's you know they were there was some you know at least low key risk of of sacrifice on their part by doing this. I mean, I think that they did it in a really safe way. 
if you, I mean, it's for all of the all of the noise that that, that this has created, and obviously, it's it, that that does not come as a surprise to anybody. No matter what you think about Kaepernick's cause or his tactics, I mean, the 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 catchphrase is "believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything." There's nothing. There's not. There's no opinion in that state in that statement. Yeah, and it's also contained within this broad sort of thing about you know people who want to be skateboarders or people who want to play football, right? And that's kind yeah. of you know it's about it's it's not it's not explicitly about the pursuit of social justice. It's no, about the pursuit no, no. of you know reaching reaching your peak, right? Just doing it in the in the Nike formulation. Sure, I mean, and there's not. I don't think even the. I don't even think the the uh, you know Colin Kaepernick's most ardent detractors. I mean, I don't think there's anyone that doesn't think he would be employed somewhere as a backup if he hadn't you know taken the stand or the you know taken the knee when he did. Um, so, I mean, it's, like I said, it's, it's factually correct. I mean, and I think that that's part of the, I mean, I'm sure that's part of the game plan for Nike, you know, I mean, the, there's a phrase that gets passed around in pro wrestling circles a lot, the, you know, in the, in the modern era, when someone is like online is irrationally mad about something that happens on a wrestling show, people will say like, you're getting worked, bro, which is basically the, the way of saying like, yeah, the whole point of this was to make you mad, was to make you irrationally mad. And that's the that's the way we recreate the old style of like people being really mad at the villains in the ring. And I think there's some extent to which Nike was just like very, I mean, very deliberately just stoking the fire, the flames of resentment here. Um, which is a fantastic segue, by the way, to Clay Travis, which we're going to talk about next. <laughs> in terms of wrestling villainy, he calls for a boycott. Clay Travis who whom you whom you might know as speaking of speaking of Twitter presences and um now on an FS1 show called for a what not not called for a boycott essentially announced he was boycotting Nike uh upon the news of of their embrace of Colin Kaepernick had the phrase get woke and go broke which by the way the the, the grammar of this headline is just just prickly enough uh, that it just it just bugs me to no end why I'm boycotting Nike colon get woke and go broke. Get, this feels like it should. This is like <laughs> that's a, his reason it, for boycotting. No, Nike. it sounds like the title of a country song, but get, but but grammatically get woke and go broke should be in parentheses. You know, it's or, or vice versa. Um, I, would, I want this. Go, I want this. I want get woke and go broke. The country song, by the way. Oh, I would absolutely love that. Can we can we commission that anyway? So. What he's implying by that, of course, is that when Nike did this, there were going to be bad financial repercussions. It turns out. Uh, according to CBS on on Friday, shares of Nike reached an all time high, which set off you know the Schadenfreude drudge siren on uh, on woke Twitter, <laughs> which was so happy to throw this back in Travis's face. I was struck by this. Remember, remember when Jamel Hill mused about a boycott of the Cowboys in 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 the midst of all the sort of crackdown on the protesting NFL players, yeah, and she got suspended, course. and then Tra- Clay Travis announced a boycott, and he got his own show. <laughs> that was weird. Yeah, yeah. Funny I don't how know that happened, happened in that exact order, but yes, yeah, pretty much. Or at least it was announced in that order. Yeah, that was funny. Yeah, no, funny that it, it worked. It, 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 it is funny how those things work out sometimes. All right, David, let's move to topic number three here, which is the fact that we're going to talk a little bit about storm coverage. Two storms, tropical depression, Florence. Uh, over the last 24 hours have been menacing North Carolina and parts of the Southeast. As of Monday morning, at least 16 people had died. And on the other side of the planet, Typhoon Mangat uh, has killed, again, as of Monday morning, 59 people in the Philippines. There were all kinds of amazing details in the New York Times report today. The 
casinos in Macau were closed, which was, as the Times put it, the first time ever that that's happened. A thousand plus flights delayed in Hong Kong, certainly more deaths across Asia. I walked by a television today and I saw something that has the shot of, you know, a waterlogged American city uh, with people in boats moving or moving around or rescuing other people. That's just become like this sort of iconic cable news shot, I feel, of the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, should we talk about that first or should we talk about the Trump tweets? I know this is always, you know, it's, it's always a point of like, do we talk, when, at what point does this all, do, do we take the bait? Speaking of getting let's worked. Say, let's, and, let's say, let's see how long we can hold off Trump for this podcast. Okay. Let's just, let's make, we'll make a record of it. What is, I, storm coverage to me, it's like, it's certainly an important story. It's, it's just become, it's interesting how it's become this, just all of American news goes to battle stations for these things. You have the print, yeah. um, you have cable news anchors down there, you have the weather channel, which we're going to talk about in a minute. It's like this this becomes the singular focus, almost singular focus of a nation for a couple of weeks uh, when in instances like this. Yeah, I was watching MSNBC at some point uh, as the storm was rolling in and Ali Velshi, who is the, who is absolutely... Uh, unparalleled in terms of just kind of like uh, very like intel like smart guy stream of consciousness monologuing about the thing that is happening at the very moment right now mm-hmm. was out there uh, in South Carolina I think somewhere on a beach uh, in his like North Face parka um, and he just offhandedly said I mean he literally he'll just say everything because the point is just to continue talking you know and so at some point he was like and of course the beaches are all completely shut down the roads are shut down you know the 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 they're not letting anybody out here at all except for uh except for you know life-saving you know firemen or boats or whoever and and you know we media and it was not there's nothing wrong with what he said but it was just just this weird statement of fact that like yeah there is a spe- there is this you know one, perhaps the most important special dispensation for the nobody can be out during a hurricane is the like 500 members of the media who are dotting the beach at that very moment. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I guess that's part of what I'm saying. It's sort of like the, the story of the recovery of the, the storm hitting of the recovery of death of, of all those kinds of, you know, the years long process it takes to come back from a serious storm like this is obviously a hundred percent legitimate story. Then there's a shot of the news anchor being blown around on the beach, which is, I mean that that sort of falls into sort of halfway between newsworthy, certainly, right? <laughs> this is happening. Um, there are people who are, you know, the the newsman, newswoman are, you know, is representing that are being affected in this way. But then there's also just like here is, you know, here is newsman being blown around the beach. Yeah, as just kind of Which this is, like stock image of of cable news. Yeah, that's like the storm coverage as like you know Shark Week or something. You know, we just like we're 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 interested in the. And anything could happen at any moment on live television. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like it's like it's not it's not completely unworthy because it's like you do when you see that you do understand like wow this is not a rainstorm right this is something this is a this is this is big and this is deadly and this is something but it's also there's also a certain kind of ceremony to it at this point. Speaking of Donald Trump, uh, hours before Florence was going to make landfall. He Wait, are we going to talk about the guy, the the guy who who was uh, acting like the wind was blowing? And the people- <laughs> sure, this was this was the Weather Channel. Uh, the Weather Channel had a had an incredible sort of PR U turn in the middle of the storm. They were 
praised for this uh, amazing sort of graphic work they did with the with Storm Surge uh, and and graphics showing this is what this is what could happen uh, in the American Southeast. And then they had this video of their reporter Mike Seidel in Wilmington, North Carolina, <laughs> who appeared to be leaning to his right into a gusting wind as if he's about to be blown over. Like he has to kind of go at a forty five degree angle because otherwise it'll just be blown across. And then we see two guys walk behind him in the parking lot. <laughs> Just, just virtual, just like they're walking to Seven Eleven to get a big gulp or a Slurpee. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. wait, wait, very a little second. resistance. Wait a second. Um, a spokesman for the Weather Channel says it's important to note that the two individuals in the background are walking on concrete while Seidel tries to maintain his footing on wet grass. Uh, and then the the spokesman got on. I suspect this is the actual answer uh, to say Seidel was exhausted after reporting on air until one a.m. Right. So you're down there. You were an extremely chaotic situation. You were, you know, mindful of how you look on television. I suspect at some point <laughs> we were looking, we were trying to find, I feel this is every, every storm has the, this moment we, we screwing around on YouTube today, found the today show canoe situation. Whereas <laughs> Matt Lauer back, back when he was hosting the today show and Katie Kirk threw it to a correspondent who is, who was in this kind of dramatic shot in a canoe and then two rescue workers walked in front of her and the water turned out to be ankle deep. So that was, you know, just that was, it turns out you probably did not need to be in the canoe uh, to get the shot. But, but, but man, it looked great. I spent some time by the way at the weather channel last year, uh-huh. people down there were incredibly lovably nerdy uh, about storms and you have all these, you know, extremely highly credentialed meteorologist out there. So I think the weather channel probably, if anything, errs on the wonky side of storm coverage. Oh, sure. And, you know, it's it's the rest of of the cable news universe anyway that that's on that. Just just saying that. I, yeah. And it was I mean, it was a really funny clip. I think that there that, that the weather I mean, the weather channel was certainly not the worst example of the sort of natural disaster porn that has taken over um, it's not just the media coverage, although there's a lot of that. But you know, my parent, my family's down in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is thankfully, you know, out of the, out of uh, you know the the most dangerous at parts of the hurricane, and and uh, they're far enough inland that it's never really a huge concern. Although you know, we I was alive for Hurricane Hugo, and it, it can it can it can get bad. But I was calling my mom, calling my dad, and then I sort just Googled to see how Charlotte was doing on Saturday afternoon. And the first thing that came up was like a YouTube video of like houses with trees falling through them and stuff. You know, I mean, it's like there's wow. this stuff is all around. But anyway, I'm sympathetic to the Weather Channel. I mean, you know, I, I, I've i been on camera before and we all, you know, suck in our gut and try to stand a few inches taller. I don't think there's anything that bad about leaning 45 degrees to the right to pretend the wind is blowing really hard on occasion just to make a point. Come on. We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> And then we have Trump. Hours before Florence made landfall, he tweets, 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after, all caps, after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then a long time later, they started to report really large numbers like 3,000. This was done by the Democrats, blah, blah, blah. Um, This was... As a tweet, I don't really have much to say about that. I thought it was interesting, though, an exchange on Twitter between uh, Benji Sarlin of MSNBC and and Maggie Haberman when they're talking about the fact that, like, there was there was this theory for a long time, kind of a working theory even, that Trump would do things like this to change the subject mm-hmm. or to try to capture, you know, the, his wackiest tweets would be things that were trying to rest the narrative like, oh, you got a Russian investigation. I'm going to just tweet something else totally outrageous. 
and get yeah. everybody looking over here. That's actually not the case, uh, according to Haberman. And if you watch, you know, if you look at something like this, it's like, why would you, why would you change the subject to hurricane denialism right before another storm hits? Like, what yeah, bizarre, like that just make that makes no sense. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and also just like, you know, just this was just one of the most mind blowing Trump tweets though. I think of all because death denialism is, is a very, even by his standards is a very, very strange and icky place to go. It's a very specific form of conspiracy theorizing. I mean, it's, yes. not, it's it, you don't want to, it's, it's it, don't even get close to that. I mean, it's so crazy. Apparently, and also so apparently on Twitter, a lot of Trumpologists think he actually really believes that. You know, there's also yeah. like the, and again, believes maybe heard on Fox News and don't have any reason to doubt them, but that he actually thinks that that's the case. And that this whole, you know, sort of workup of all the people who died because it wasn't power, because they didn't have easy access to medicine and food and clean water um, was something that was cooked up by the Democrats. The, the, the wildest part about it, at least, you know, maybe this is too from a sort of meta point of view. I mean, one, you can make the case that it's it's uh, it's um, symptomatic of his remove of his of his um, lack of uh, just general comprehension that that, uh, you know, as soon as the storm was over, that no no one else is going to die. And there's a certain um, privilege in that that like, OK, that that might be true in a in in you know. Uh, whatever resort town you're living in that like, you know, there's enough EMTs and never, and, and, and various other rescue workers around that the, that pretty much stems the tide as soon as the storm is over. Um, for, so for him not to be able to wrap his mind around it, you know, is, 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 I think, like I said, symptomatic of something. Um, but the bigger issue, I mean, that's not the bigger issue, but, but sort of the more salient point when it comes to Trump is just like, this was there was no need for this. He wasn't exact. There was no political. No one was attacking him politically on this front, at least not to any, not in any sort of you know overwhelming way. Um, and this and this was again another just an op, like a like an easy opportunity for him to say to him for him to be presidential to make just if if if, if you'll allow me to dumb it down, uh, you know, to, in the most basic way, it, he didn't he didn't need to make this a he didn't he didn't need to come out firing at this because it just didn't because it just was totally unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, turning down easy opportunities to, quote, be presidential, to do mm -hmm. thing, to go through this kind of ceremony that the rest of the media will eat up, whether you mean it or not. And, and we saw this with John McCain's funeral, you know, not lowering the flags and then finally lowering mm -hmm. the flags and not not coming out with a statement saying John McCain is an American hero and blah, blah, blah. Even if you don't mean it, his refusal to go through with this, the kind of media ceremony of the American presidency, again, one of the strangest and most striking things about him. Um, and, you know, people I, I think I saw I think I saw was it Woodward. I, f I forget who's who was telling Trump. Somebody's somebody's Trump. Oh, it was Mark Leibovich in his books. Trump was talking about tweeting and how much he tweeted. And Mark Leibovich is no, no, no. Please keep tweeting because we want an accurate record of your mind. This is something we never we don't get with politicians a lot of the time because it's buried under ceremony uh, and it's buried under the kind of statements. I hope everybody's well and safe tonight. Blah 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 blah. In the hurricane, uh, we Trump declines to do that. So perhaps we are as uh, seeing a, a more accurate reflection of his mind as as strange a place of territory as that is all right david that's the press box for this week thanks yeah. to our producer jim cunningham thanks to chris almeida for helping us with research back next week with more hot takes about the media see you then david 
See you later, man. Creepy porn lawyer yeah. toying with 2020 run. It sounds like the title of a country song. Mm-hmm. I agree. We've all lost the plot on romance. No. There's a phrase that gets passed around in pro wrestling circles a lot. The, you know, in the, in the modern era when someone is like online is irrationally mad about something that happens on a wrestling show. People will say like, calling my mom, calling my dad. Get woke and go broke. And I don't know. What do you think? A big fat editor's note. This is self-pitying and ridiculous. Yeah. This is Curtis Country. Yeah. That production of Zorba from the early 70s is still talked about in his hometown? Um, I mean, listen. No. I don't think anybody really assumes that's the case. Man, I was, I was trying to find a million different ways to work troll into this. <laughs>